Welcome to the Independent Artist Podcast, sponsored by the National Association of Independent Artists. Also sponsored by Zapplication. I'm Will Armstrong, and I'm a mixed media artist. I'm Douglas Sigworth, glassblower. Join our conversations with professional working artists. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Happy 4th of July, independent artists out there. Hope you had a really good weekend at shows. For those of you in Denver or other 4th of July holiday weekend shows, I'm sure you're on that Monday morning hangover, that afterburn. Hope it went well for you. I'm sure it's become a little bit obvious by now that I'm flying solo today. We're all in the midst of the busiest time of the year for art show artists. I got back from Des Moines right as Will was heading off to Denver. So we have something a little different planned for you all today that we hope you enjoy. You know, as we talk to guests here on the podcast throughout the last year and a half, someone will bring up a topic and it will make us think back to a conversation we had previously with another artist. So one of the things we've commented on is that these conversations never really end. It's almost like they just keep rolling on. And so today we decided that we would take kind of a a look back at some of the pearls from the past year and a half and pull out some of those points that have kind of left its mark. I'm going to do my best to jump in between some of the clips to let everyone know who is speaking, who the artist is. But if you have any doubt, you can just jump onto the episode notes. Uh, So if you want to go back or if you want to, for the first time, listen to their entire talk and have kind of a reference point or framework as to to who it was that was talking in that moment. But some of them, I might just let them roll right on through because it does seem kind of like where one story lets off and the next one picks up. It seems pretty seamless, almost like, you know, 35 different artists jumping in on the same conversation and allowing it to to kind of move and kind of flow. So uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, strap on that seatbelt, get comfortable, and have a safe drive across the road home from your show or firing up your studio and making some great work. We really appreciate you tuning in and, and joining us on this ride. This first talk that I wanted to revisit is from Justin Tillett. The talk zeroes in on branching out being inspired to try new materials. And so this is what he's talking about here in his episode, A Constant State of Becoming. I threw my first pot when I was five, Mm -hmm. you know, and and that's a a different story. But I had never gone more than a few months in like 40 years without Mm -hmm. throwing a pot. I I feel you on that. I'm feeling the same way. I'm like kind of like stepping into your shoes and I'm thinking, okay, what if I started considering a a series or something that was a departure from glass and I start getting this like this feeling like, you know, sad inside. Like Right, right. But also exciting. It sounds like it's exciting because you've got this puzzle to solve that's opening new doors. It is. It is. And I, I, you know, I, I, it's been a while since I've sat at the wheel. It's been, you know, it's been a year probably since I really sat down and and did a good session. I thought that that would be huge, you know, but it hasn't been. And I think that what it boils down to is fingers wiggling, you know, as long as I've got some material in front of me to manipulate somehow, then then that part of my brain satisfied. Mm. The connection to the wheel was more, 
Yeah, I guess it was more emotional than it was really connected to a need to do that particular material in that particular manner. Do you think it's uh, it's also kind of getting out of the comfort zone? Like, mm. you know, we work so much with a material for years, 20, 30, I mean, your case, since you were a little kid, and we feel like we know this material, there's still the new things to learn with it. But for the most part, we feel like pretty good with it. Mm-hmm. And then to step away from that and be like, okay, now while I'm having to learn, solve new puzzles with wood or new puzzles with mm-hmm. with metal, and you get in a vulnerable place of having to do that rediscovery of what am I doing? Am I out of my element here? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's that's every 10 minutes. Is every <laughs> every 10 minutes. Um, that's why I was up till the sun came up, you know? Mm. I don't know. There's something, I, I guess, inherently satisfying about that. Mm-hmm. need to solve that puzzle you know i mean it's 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 hell when it's happening but that 10 minutes we all get at some point in time to sit across the room by ourselves staring at that thing that we just finished and it's done mm-hmm. and and oh i remember when that 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 piece broke off or i remember when that went awry you know mm-hmm. but but now here i am it's it's realized that moment you know is what we're what we're after the satisfaction of like, I didn't know exactly how it was going to turn out, but I got to the other side of it and then the discoveries that come from mm-hmm. it. And mm-hmm. we're still bringing the years of experience of being an artist, mm-hmm. of artistic design and principles and all that sorts of things to new material. So it's not like we're coming into a new material like as beginners or anything, mm-hmm. even though we feel like beginners when oh, we yeah. start this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, that's what's one of the great things about the way we've gone about it, we've all gone about it from so many different directions and it takes all those directions to make it work. But so oftentimes we are in the company of our peers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and that's when you realize like you can't, you can't just tiptoe through this. I mean, there is, people are amazing at right. what they do. And, right. and seeing that on a regular basis, it just, it really, I often feel like the best I can do is be on par with these people, you know, Mm -hmm. that I'm, that I'm surrounded with on a daily basis, on a, on a monthly basis, whatever it is, this, this artwork that I see by these people that, that are, it's just, it's astounding, you know, and, and just to, just to be able to stay on par with that is what I think challenges me to, to keep going with it. The minute that my work is good enough, I guess I'm done. You know, is that, you know, so it's, it's, there's, there's always a lot of room to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Bob Dylan said, never stop becoming and you'll probably be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's, that's, that's good words. I mean, you know, if, yeah. if we can achieve and we can achieve and we can achieve with our, with our abilities. And, and as long as we have something to chase, I think we're going to be okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This next section is about finding the artistic voice where artists will use what's going on in their own personal life, reflect that into their artwork to make a statement or to work through something creatively or, or personally. Featured in this section is Bennett with her episode titled Breaking the Boundaries. We have Ty Taoli with his episode titled Ballpoints, Legos, and Blues Bars. Also, Kina Crow with My Ridiculous Little Life. And Clifton Henri with Sharing Your Authentic Voice. 
what was more challenging for me growing up more so than just coming to terms with being a queer kid was gender norms. And it was so prevalent in my household, in my community. And it, and it still is. Those are oftentimes in more conservative Christian religions, more legalistic, you know, there is a hierarchy. It is a patriarchal society and your home is set up that way. Uh, You are taught that ultimately the man makes the decision. The man does these things. Mm -hmm. You know, I struggled with that. My parents were really great about raising us to be independent and to be ourselves, you know, it, much to their dismay, I took that to heart and was like, all right, let me let me go do this. But my dad, he would just try to get at me because he knew that oftentimes whatever it was I was having a hard time with, maybe, you know, I was being told I couldn't do something because I, I was not a guy. Wow, yeah. He knew that not only could I do it, that I could probably do it better than the guys. And I, and I had, I overheard him one time in a conversation talking to someone about his team one year, because he ended up coaching at my high school okay. and he made a comment that he wished that I and a friend of mine could come and play for him because we would be his best wide receivers, you know? Right. And he knew that that, that, that was true. And so, but he would always just try to uh, make jokes and it was always like, well, this is for guys, you know? Okay. And, and so I always really had a hard time with that because, you know, I, I did not understand why this was the case, you know, when I was younger. And, uh, and so in my work, a lot of it is, you know, I, I have a lot of female bodied representation in my work and most of it is a nod to women who just decided, no, I am, I am my own person. Right. I play by my own rules and I'm going to call my own shots. I mean, like talk about this latest piece that I saw on Instagram where you've got a big cat. I've got a cheetah on there. You know, admittedly, this is going to seem so trite, but it was important for me to make because it wasn't important. It was, it was more a, a personal thing than anything, but there is, there's a book that came out at the beginning of the pandemic called Untamed by a writer called Glennon Doyle. Love her. Um, yeah. And uh, anyway, her opening story in her book is about exactly what most of my work is about. And she's talking about how her daughter, we grow up in this world as female identifying folks and there is an expectation of us and we have to live within, within these bounds right. of femaleness, whatever that may be, however that may be defined, but there are boundaries. She's talking about being at the zoo with her daughter, this imagery of this cheetah in this cage, in this fence and her imagining this, this cheetah busting through this fence and breaking out like this, this cheetah does not know anything but these boundaries. And there's so much more. Actually, the world they want to live in is way outside of these boundaries. The phrase is, you're not crazy. You're a goddamn cheetah (laughs) uh, is what she says to her daughter, essentially. And uh, it's just about living untamed 
So that's that's what that's from. That's really cool. I'm glad I asked you yeah. about that. It seems like an important piece. Yeah, it, it was uh, just something that I personally needed to put down. Yeah. Whether somebody takes it to put it in their home or not remains to be seen. But Somebody's yeah. going to take it home. Yeah, yeah. A lot of artists in, in this industry are so afraid to say anything. You know, it's like there's a lot of decorative work out there. There's a lot of really good decorative work out there, but they're not saying we're like, well, I really wish I could get political. I wish I could, but nobody's going to buy that, which I think, you know, you walk into your booth and clearly that's obviously nonsense. You know, I mean, I, you say whatever you want and that's, I have, I've always admired. I mean, do you ever find yourself, well, maybe I shouldn't say this or do you, I mean, cause it seems to me like when I walk into your booth, you're just going for it. Yeah, you know, well, thank you. And I, I never, I've always had an artistic talent, but I've never considered myself an artist and never even un, like understood the world. And I still don't. And it's not something I ever even really want to understand. Um, I, I, what, I have verbal communication issues. I, I have adjective recall is one of my, I practice every single day. Um, to remember adjectives and to uh, work on my communication skills. I've done that for, it's almost like I have a stutter. I jump ahead. Okay. Like you can hear it. I hate to ever point it out because if you ever go back and listen to anything that I do, I'll start saying something and I'll jump over somewhere else to <laughs> where yeah, I think yeah, everybody's yeah. with me, but no one really is. Drives my wife's oh. nut, my wife nuts. I know that. <laughs> But um, so my my work, my artwork has always just been me. The only way I can communicate. So and I have never, ever been afraid to say things that I like or say things that I don't like. I've ne I've never had any fear of that. So my artwork is just an extension of of that, I think. So. Yeah, sometimes it gets into conversations that I don't care for with people. I was wondering. I mean, is that it's got to? I mean, we the way we show in a lot of the different places that we I've seen you in Des Moines, I've seen you in Fort Worth, and I'm like, I, you know, Fort Worth, uh, it can be a bit of an edgy town, and I could see, you know, you were there the first year that you were there. I was, and I'd never seen you there. I was like. Oh yeah, they're gonna eat yeah. you alive. Like it's just your market. But I could yeah. also see <laughs> cowboy, you know, cowboy hat guy walks in and gives you a hard time or says, Well, what's this about? And um, I don't know. How do those conversations go? You know what I find most people with my artwork is if it's not your thing, it's almost like you don't even see it. So the people who ever come in and have some sort of issue or want to uh start up some sort of drama there are people that are always looking for it and so right. they'll come in and they'll and I, most of the issues i ever have are usually like religious based people want to come in and try to ask me if i found god and stuff like that um they always sides like t-bone like they'll do like a trick well they'll be like oh wow you're so incredible um how do you do this? Or do you, do you think that it's some other spirit from above? You know, I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, I just enjoy it. And then all of a sudden, have you accepted uh, Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I was like, what? <laughs> what? And I have right. no problem with people with religion, but then they start trying to go into things about, well, this is what you're drawing here is um, the sign of the devil and all that stuff. And I don't even, I don't even think about that at all. I've also, I'm heavily tattooed, which back in the day used to, 
be kind of a scary for people to approach me, but I have learned over the years people are afraid to approach me, but I'm a teddy bear, man. I, I'm, I'm emotional and sensitive and um, I just have a look that sometimes comes off as like, I'm a hard ass, but I'm really not. The good thing about that is it usually keeps those people at bay where I don't have to usually get into too much confrontation. So I don't like confrontation. Yeah. A lot of the concepts for the pieces or the titles come from my struggle to get over my insecurities and which mm. honestly age totally helps with that, you know, yeah, but, right. um, and, and learning to like get over myself and that shit. I get these epiphanies that I'm like, Oh, I'm totally ridiculous. And, <laughs> and the more I can make fun of myself, the better the pieces are. Then I come up with these great ideas, you know? Well, would you say that your, your work is self-referential? To absolutely. You know, okay. I, I'm doing a lot of custom work now where people will say, oh, you know, this is me and this is my life. And I'm able to ap after all the years, you know, because I do love other people and their stories. I love stories. So mm -hmm. um, I'll take people's stories and then try to write something specific for them. And um, and that's actually harder. That's that's much harder. Yeah, well, to me, um, it comes from a very theatrical place, a very, like, as a, a trained actor in method acting, I spent so much time building a backstory for every character for that one minute on stage. You know, I mean, you figured out where they went to school and their storyline and what they had for breakfast, what happened the minute they walked in the door. You put all this into it just to walk on and have your line and walk off again. So your pieces have this rich backstory. And hearing you talk about it on Seesaw, literally, I mean, you have a whole fleshed out life for these characters that you've created in your work. I, I think I've known them all along, but oh, mm -hmm. it, it's so funny that you talk about method acting because I totally studied for a few months at the actor's studio. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I totally know what you're talking about. <laughs> like you said, they are self-referential, uh -huh. but I, so I already know them, you know, I do have a ridiculous imagination. <laughs> Yeah. Which is why I yeah. can't find my keys because I can never find my keys because I'm always thinking about something else, you know? Oh, right. Right. But you know what I think is like, it's, it's like I go back to that like weird, like little three-year-old dancing on the table for, in order for my father to drink. And I always thought <laughs> that I'm not religious, but I always have a joke that uh, God made me fat so I wouldn't be a table dancer because I can't think of anything better than like, dancing naked on a table, except I'm way too chubby to do that. So I think I'm trying to do that within my pieces, but for sure, for sure, this is my, it's my little journey, but it's not just my, my journey. I, I really, you know, and this is the most awesome thing about doing art festivals rather than selling your work at a gallery, you meeting people who are looking at your work and who are identifying with it. And it makes me feel like, oh, I'm not such a crazy bitch. There's like so many other people out there who feel the same way that I do. It makes me feel good. It makes them mm -hmm. feel good. It's like, you know, to have those, especially like those weird little naughty, strange parts of you, <laughs> like recognized and go, oh yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm batshit too. And it's okay. 
Yeah, you make the invitation for people to walk in your booth or connect with your work and to see you are brave to say, you know, this is part of me that's kind of insecure. And they want to, they would be like, I can be brave too. And I can let you know that I connect with you on that level. And that's really cool. So, yeah. Yeah, I love it. And I, I try to do so, I try to have the funny stuff because uh, I love hearing people laugh. Um, uh-huh. And then, I, I'm like, I love to have the really sort of deep, more uh, introspective, poignant stuff, because I also love it when somebody comes up and they're totally crying. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I get one crier every show and it's like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, it's got to be like such a rewarding feeling when when someone walks in and just has a full-on belly laugh like that, like you've evoked that response. It's awesome, yeah. So finding your voice through photography, uh, really it's my perspective, what I would like to see represented out there. You know, so a lot of my work is uh, black and brown faces. So portraits of, you know, people, black and brown, uh, of African descent or Latino descent. Like, that's what I'm interested in seeing. That's what I didn't see uh, going to, you know, museums and galleries and things like that growing up. You know, I wanted to see a reflection of me and the communities that I grew up in and the people that I know and that I'm friends with and things like that. I found that other people were interested in seeing what I wanted to see and applauded me because they got what they wanted out of the work that I was naturally producing. You just have to believe in what your uh, what your mission is or what your narrative is going to be. Let the narrative be the uh, the core that drives the work that you that you produce. Kind of what I've noticed in talking to like gallery owners and museum curators and things like that, and just my own opinion, a lot of the work in the art world that is celebrated is more so celebrated on what the artist was trying to do rather than what they actually did. And Interesting. Which, which means to me that the mission or your calling or your message or your intent is more important and more significant than the actual like final product. So it has more to do with your heart, your heart in the work and being able to convey that to people and then people understanding it. Like, I think that's where, that's where the, the rubber meets the road. That's a successful, it's a successful piece. If you can convey what you want to convey and people right. receive it within the realm of what you were trying to say. And then that's a dope piece. Uh, that's what helped out in graphic design too. <clears throat> Uh, well, uh, I'm glad you said that because I wanted to bring up one of your pieces. It's one of my favorites. There's a young man standing on top of a wheel. Yeah. You know, and it, it's an incredibly strong image. Uh, it was chosen by Bayou City yep. as the poster image. That one is, uh, so that one was shot in Ghana. And the name of the piece is The High Road. A lot of my work revolves around the idea of a perspective, you know, a change of perspective. Uh, the reason I shoot what I shoot is to kind of change the the narrative of the imagery we see of black and brown people, you know, so it's more of a positive, more uplifting, um, more of your everyday beautiful nuggets of life 
and not just <clears throat> like tragic scenarios that we, you know, are kind of used to seeing like within the media. Right. Um, but yeah, that was a powerful piece. They wanted wings, you know, they wanted. Okay. To I was going to ask you about wings next. Yeah, yeah. You know, they wanted to, they wanted to use wings and I'm saving her. I don't know what I'm saving her for, but you know, for the, uh, for the publicity of an event and a festival or something, and I'm not getting an end on it. Yeah. With that being my most popular famous recognizable piece you know something's just like nah don't don't do it because the next guy was like oh you used it for that one and you used it for that one and they used it too yeah they're like nah okay well what else you got <laughs> yeah you well I mean? I, I, yeah i do i know exactly what you mean yep you posted wings and you, you got, I mean, it, there's a little girl that she's standing in her mirror and she's standing on the sink yep, with the and arms she's got right. her arms raised. And it's such a powerful image of, of strength and of pride in young girls and, and pride in your, in yourself. Mm -hmm. You shared that on Instagram and it went viral. I wanted to ask you a little bit about that because I, I mean, everybody's kind of fantasy. Right. <laughs> It kind of picked up on that too. So anyway, talk on that a little bit. All right. There was, there's a show in, uh, in Miami during art Basel during, uh, Miami art week called prism. And I had a couple of pieces selected to be in the show. Uh, so wings was one of the pieces that was selected in the show. So during that week, I ended up posting wings and because, you know, all kinds of celebrities and everybody is out that weekend, like I'm kind of pushing it a little, a little hard, like, yo, come to the show, come see the piece. Yeah. You know, I'm looking, looking for my break. Right. <laughs> yeah, of course. And, uh, you know, a handful of in, uh, important people end up coming by the show, end up seeing the piece. They ended up photographing it, finding a copy of it or whatever, tweeting it, sending it out. But the big swing, uh, came when Alicia Keys posted, the photo yeah it went it went simply bananas after that yeah <laughs> simply bananas it didn't i mean holly berry commented on that too or am i making that up it on it. uh no 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 she was on there she was on there okay. for sure i had to screenshot yeah. that too <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> and i loved what you did with the kamala harris uh, right. image too that was cool too i was on the i was on the fence i was totally on the fence about it but i'm like it's cool when you can, I don't want to, I don't want to call it a bootleg, but you know what I mean? But you, when you can yeah. revamp your own piece where there is like some significance like in the world right now. So let's call it a remix, not a, yeah, not anything well, there else. Was so much excitement when that happened. For sure. You know, and, and there's so much pride in, in that and in pride in our country and, and for what, has been accomplished Absolutely. You know, the walls that are breaking down so you know you can't fault anybody for getting caught up in that in that kind of excitement and i loved that image for sure for sure but i'm glad I, i'm glad i did it she has seen it has she really she has how do you know how do you find out uh, a woman that uh, purchased she purchased like maybe five of them only did a small a small amount of them is good friends with her incredible yeah so uh i think one is going her way 
which is cool. <laughs> that is really cool. Yeah, Congratulations. Really cool. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. Yeah, that's unbelievable. This episode of the Independent Artist Podcast is brought to you by Zap, the digital application service where artists and art festivals connect. Well, sometimes I'm in a real hurry, and I just love that I have things that are saved in Zap to streamline my process. Saving shows as favorites is my personal way of using Zap. Uh, that's my favorite. Uh, I know a lot of people use the calendar, they use the events, but for me, if I'm saving the favorites of anything I've ever looked at or thought about doing, then I can check out those deadlines on a regular basis. But then there's other times when I have a little more time on my hands and I'm looking into other shows. All the information is right there in the prospectus with links to the website. I can see who the artists are that have participated in the past. That's a great idea, Douglas, because one of the ways that I was finding shows at the very beginning was to go online and see who I felt my work looked good with. It's just great that all that information is organized and easy to look over when planning our next show season. I have to say probably the last two, three years I was framing, I felt the frustration, um, you know, almost like an, a little bit like I'm an animal in a cage, like I'm mm. trapped here okay. um, instead of loving to going to work every day. There had been a shift and yet it just seemed like an impossible decision to to close the business. I mean, mm. it, it, it was the frame shop was my baby. Mm-hmm. It was the baby that never grew up and was never mm. going to stop needing me. And at some point, I, I think I wanted the baby to go away to college or something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right that's a really good point. Right. <laughs> And yet, I mean, I loved the baby, you know? Yeah, yeah. I I really did. And I I felt like I would be betraying it to even consider it. But then it really just sort of reached a point where instead of trying to figure out all the reasons why I could or I couldn't or how it would work if I did or if I didn't, I just decided to make a decision. Yeah. And. And that that's so much of what I think holds people back is they're trying to figure out all the little minutia of mm. of the decision when they just need to make the decision. And then things will fall into place. When I started custom framing, I didn't know how to custom frame. I didn't mm-hmm. know how to run a business. Right. And what I figured out right away was that I should never look up. Just take the step, then you take the next step, then you take another step. And all of a sudden, you've walked down the road. Right. Well, that served as an example to you that, well, I've done it in this aspect, so I can apply the same skill walking into a new way of selling my work. I don't have to know everything about it. I just need to take the next step and then continue to take the next step. And you Mm -hmm. would have confidence in the fact that you'd just figure it out like you figured out the other thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I wish that I'd had that clear vision, but you know, it, it was really, I was walking my dog. It was a Tuesday morning okay. and, and literally I felt, I felt myself walk out of myself because I was milling it over in my brain. How am I going to do this? How could I possibly consider doing this? And then all of a sudden it was like, I saw myself, she was walking down the road in front of me. And she was done. Mm. She had made a decision. And I just needed 
to follow her lead. So I came home. It was a Tuesday morning and my husband was working from home that day. And I said, do you mind if I close my shop? I would just want to be an artist. And he he gave the perfect husband answer. If it makes you happy. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. So I did. And I say that, you know, that was a Tuesday morning. And by Sunday evening, we sent out a mass email that said effective immediately. I no longer frame. Wow. I mean, it seems abrupt, like you say, on a Tuesday and then on a Sunday. But you sound like you had two years of really needing to come to terms with that before it could settle in and be like, I don't have to have reasons X, Y, and Z. I can just yeah. make the decision and it's okay that I'm done with this now. And it's okay that I'm done with this. Yeah. 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 It's like it served its purpose and it does not negate its value in your life or its emotional connection or like it meant it wasn't what you were supposed to be doing. It would just meant now it was time to move on to the next thing. You know, time to make a change. And I think it's one of the things that I struggle with, you know, change. Uh, it scares me. It upsets me. Our neighbor mm. moved out recently and I just keep thinking, how could he do that? How could oh. he change his life like that and just leave us? <laughs> <laughs> how dare he? <laughs> how dare he? <laughs> and I wasn't, I wasn't ready. I needed, I, I needed a ready. couple of years to yeah. think about this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It happened too quickly for me. Once I gave up the frame shop, my thought was, and this is kind of funny, was that this will be easy. I'll just be an artist Mm -hmm. and I'll do a show or two here or there. And and now I realize, I mean, I've worked a thousand times harder at this than I ever did at framing. Right. Because you've now you're taking on two or three full time jobs, the full time job of creating the full time job of selling the full time job of marketing. The accounting. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. <laughs> but but you're like you're, you said you're feeling joy every day. So this is oh, yeah. this is like the trade off. It's the the tasks of a joyful life versus the feeling like you can't do this another second longer, whatever that life would have, you know what I mean? Whatever the other tasks we commit ourselves to. No, I mean, I feel like, I feel like I am really for the first time, I'm fully awake. I'm fully alive. I'm fully present. What, what this career asks of me is everything I want to do and be and give. Wow. that I mean, that's got to be an amazing feeling right there. It is. It is. I mean, I, I've, I think the first year that I was doing this full time, I just kept saying, I'm awake. I'm awake now. I'm awake. <laughs> cool. That was Cindy Olms in her episode titled Fully Awake. And, you know, a lot of our conversations this year centered around how we got into this business, how we made that leap of faith, and her story was one of our favorites. Okay, coming up next, it's that industry shift that we notice on the road, the discussion about going big, making things in a large way and appealing to the the high-end collectors. The first conversation is with Dylan Straczynski. 
in capital F, and followed by Eric Lee. The title of his episode is Going Big. You know, and for for me, this is really important. Thinking about artists who work in a way that I relate to myself, mm -hmm. where you're kind of doing like a, a range of work and it's a new body of work. I think there used to be more artists that did that. Yeah. And the the thing that has happened in the last 20 years, but particularly since 2008, when, when, when wealth has become kind of concentrated in another direction, you've sort of lost that middle part of the audience right. at art fairs. Yep. What, what it caused was a real demand and emphasis on large, bold work that can appeal to somebody who has fairly deep pockets and can also be somewhat more easily produced. Do you know what I mean? Like you have, it's a sure. weird, it, there's like, like it has to have the art fair gloss, the art fair presentation yeah. that you have to have to stand out to attract that type of buyer. And with that comes scale. And, and I don't even know if people are doing it conscientiously, but as an acknowledgement of what the actual demands of the market are. Right. Like I do, I consider you to be an example of, of the type of show artist who can easily grab that, that, the, that, that type of consumer who is showing up with the money to spend, you know, right. your things are pretty bold. They're pretty large. Yeah. They have a real like slick presentation. You're people definitely, can walk down, yeah. You can I'm, walk down the street. And there, there's no, there's no ambiguity about it. It's yeah. like, there it is right there, you know, where, and this was the error that I made in this last like two years. And I, cause I understand that, but because I was left alone to do whatever the heck I wanted, <laughs> I, I started making these things that I really liked that had this like real textured, you know, kind of subtle layer and, you know, material usage that all is so like it's raw but it's kind of thoughtfully put together and and it all became like kind of small yeah and not very bold and the the large pieces that i did make when you're just passing by on the street they don't they don't look like any anything interesting you know, it yeah. doesn't occur to you that, oh, I got to walk up there and look and like, oh my gosh, this is, well, these little, these things are cut out and this thing is covered in this staples and it's covered in paint. And there's like this little line in the space between the things that I stuck together. And like, none of that, you're not getting that. You're just walking down the street and you're like, oh man, here's the big stuff over here. Right. Bam, bam, bam. This guy is this quiet little weenie over here. He's <laughs> in his own little, little world. Of well, this guy's whatever. over in his own little world. Meanwhile, your next door neighbor has literal mustaches that you can ride and bananas. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. So it, for some reason, like the, the culture of art shows and the way that art is successfully presented and sold on the street has skewed in this, this large direction, yeah. you know, this large, slick, non-ambiguous direction. Like there can't be much question about what you're, you're looking at. And if there is, it has to make a lot of sense as soon as you enter the booth and start looking. Right. 
you know, and, and I, in my weird highbrow fine art with a capital F conflicted with a guy who wishes he could draw like Boris Vallejo world, <laughs> I started like doing the kind of the opposite thing, even though I know better. Yeah. Yeah. You seem to be able to design and have a market and sell for those really high end clients. I started uh, working with those clients even before the crash. I had a lot of response from corporate clients. Mm -hmm. Early in my career, I started working with hospitals mm -hmm. and lobbies for, for residential commercial buildings. So I, I guess the best way to, to describe it was I, when people asked me, even when the crash happened, why you don't lower your prices and go to smaller work. And my response was essentially that if someone's driving a mid-range Beamer, they may be strapped. They may be just to the point where they're getting their bills paid, mm -hmm. but someone driving a Bentley doesn't have a car payment. Mm. And so, you know, you find that people of, of means seem to always have enough disposable income to purchase art. And, and actually, the other thing I was thinking about that is people take it more seriously when it's significant in terms of its, its size and, and actually its cost as well. Mm -hmm. You don't try and price yourself out, but you do have to be uh, be considered a serious artist, not just a, a person who's dabbling. There you go. Yeah. And in your presentation, when you went big, when you show up and put a couch in the middle of your design room as opposed to an art fair tent, it gives that impression. It, the high-end collector has to walk up and say, I can visualize this in my space as opposed to like, I'm looking at it in a tent. Absolutely. And the along those lines, to follow up on your point, they remember your tent. Mm. So they'll walk around and see 200 other artists, but they remember the one with the leather couch and with the tables in it and the flowers and that type of thing. It's a branding mm. issue, I guess. Mm -hmm. And that's a big, big part of what I crafted my career around is having my work be memorable. Mm. So as an artist and also the work itself to be memorable, the idea of interacting with clients so that, that you make a connection is it goes a long way toward uh, toward having a successful career, I believe. Okay, so this customer base we're talking about, do they actually shop for themselves or do they hire a designer or somebody to kind of scout you and then they bring your designs to the client? Are you still having that one-on-one -on -one connection with the end game buyer? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because they're a cornerstone of the way I viewed my career was to have multiple revenue streams. Mm -hmm. By that, I mean, not having complete dependence on art shows or galleries or designers or, or work that's been sold through other institutions like showrooms mm -hmm. yeah, that because there'd be peaks and valleys in each area of for sure. And so if, if shows weren't, were letting off, I would have interior designers I would be able to tap into. And if, if interior designers may have been, uh, a little quiet for a while, I would work with art consultants. And that's, I did a lot of work with hospitals and, and commercial interiors that way. It's a real mix of where my client base comes from. Mm -hmm. Some are directly from interior designers. It, it's a tricky thing working with interiors people, though I do enjoy it. And it's my previous career. So I, I speak their language. I can lead, read a set of drawings. So I can make suggestions, yeah. but it's a tricky thing because you're one removed from the client. What yeah. the client requests and what the uh, designer perceives that to be and how they transmit that information to you may be miles apart. 
And to me, the client is ultimately who I'm painting for or working with. Mm. So the idea is to interpret what the designer says. And, and if ever possible, I, I try and avoid not having contact with the client. Right. I, I always try and, and find a way to speak directly to see how closely the designer is interpreting what the client is looking for. I think you're very responsive and intuitive and you can read that client. You have a different understanding level than maybe what the designer is, you know, because they don't make the work. They just are shopping for the work. And their their goal is often to not so much to increase their or enhance their career. It's to to promote their vision. Mm-hmm. And and I believe that the person that's going to live with the work is the one that should be governing the the eventual product, how it turns out, because the designer will be on to another project. Mm-hmm. And the, the person waking up every day looking at the work is the one that, that the artist literally for. Well, COVID taught us a lot of things. We had that moment to kind of stop and reevaluate. And we had a number of those conversations over the year. One of the first ones we wanted to highlight was Chris Dahlquist. In her episode, Defining Your Path, she describes creating business practice that is based on being proactive versus reactive. And in the next clip, we talked to Daryl Thetford in his episode titled The Courage to Say No, who encourages us to take a hard look at the choices we make in our business, and sometimes saying no, even if it seems like a hard choice to do. I've been working with artists for about a dozen years now, building sustainable practices. And the one thing that they all have in common, all of the ones that have successful and sustainable careers, is that they're very proactive about creating that career for themselves. That concentrate a lot on goal setting mm-hmm. and uh, defining the path that you want to go as an artist. That's absolutely has to be the place you start with a proactive career. Artists tend to work really reactively, and it kind of stands to reason because when we're in our studio, we're often working reactively. How how so? Well, as a glass artist, my guess is that you're reacting and you're responding to the glass oh, as okay. it's giving you feedback, right? right? Or as a painter, you're reacting to the last mark that you made on the canvas, right? It's this process of reacting oftentimes to the last thing that you've done or to your materials. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. As opposed to kind of wrestling the materials You're working in concert with them. Right. In the creating of our work, we start with a plan, a goal of what we're doing. You know, we react to the evolution of the piece. But now when it comes to the business side of it, we need to be a little bit more of a planner and and look at the end game. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. In in fact, the way you've laid it out in terms of um, the way we might work as an artist is very much the way we should work with our career. To have that end goal, to have a vision of where we want to go, and then begin mapping the course from here to there. And a lot of times it's just about reacting to an opportunity as it comes up. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, they want They want me to show here or this opportunity has come up without really analyzing it. Does it get me to my goal? Is this going to help me get to that uh, end objective that I have? Do do you find that if we only focus on being reactive, that we don't make ourselves aware to what we actually want to create in front of us? And like, you know, if you're proactively saying, I want to work in this way or I want this opportunity to come to me, that we then have our eyes open and see the subtle cues. 
100%. Yes, absolutely. There's so much opportunity around us. Once we set the course towards it, mm-hmm. it often will, uh, we'll see it in our environment that those opportunities are there. How does an artist sit down and kind of define a business model or an objective or goal for themselves? You need to start with the end game in mind. At the end of the day, where do you want to be? And so in a lot of the workshops that I do, we start with a very holistic view of where do you want to be? We actually start with sounds morbid. It is not meant to be morbid. It's meant to really define our values. Uh, We start with writing a eulogy for ourselves. Meaning like at the end of your life, what do you want to have accomplished? Uh Right. What do you want people to say about you? And what do you want to have accomplished um, at the end of your life? Like we start with this very big, big view. We get so wrapped up in the details of getting to the next show or packing the van or making X number of pieces, whatever it is that we don't take this large view Mm -hmm. of at the end of the day, what do I, what am I really doing and what do I want to have been doing? Um, And I think, I think the last year has really given us a, a reset to step off the hamster wheel for a minute and really think about what, what and why am I doing Mm -hmm. this? Um, I, I totally relate to what you're saying the grueling schedules that we set up for ourselves, it becomes really just trying to execute like this amazing race, this tough mutter kind of mentality of, I just have to do, you know, this step, this step, this step, without there being a kind of a step back and a thoughtful approach about how we do it and what we're trying to accomplish. And the pandemic has really made us all go, whoa, (laughs) now what do we do and kind of reevaluate? Yeah, I I think it's actually kind of a lucky stroke for me. Uh, I had always been real intentional with building my practice, uh, or I thought I had been at the beginning. And then I got on the hamster wheel of doing festivals, and I kind of forgot to step out to really consider what I was doing. I was working with Polaroids. And in 2008, they stopped manufacturing Polaroid film. I remember that. And so I had this same kind of, uh, not to the degree, of course, that we've had this last year, but this real sudden reset of my practice. And in that same spring of 2008, I was fortunate enough to go to a workshop with an organization called Creative Capital that really asked you to dig into why you're doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And it all kind of came to a head with the loss of the film and that, that I could really, really evaluate what and why I was doing it and set a new course for myself. Right. And expand and grow. Yeah. So what at first looked like a terrible thing ended up being a really important reset for me. Mm -hmm. It was painful, painful at the time, right? I was completely panicked. I had no idea. I had shows scheduled and no material to make work that I had juried in with. Right. So, of course, it was terrible at the time. But looking back at it, I can see how instrumental Mm -hmm. that introspection was. I am hopeful that we'll be able to look back at this time, mm-hmm. 10 years from now, 12 years from now, and say, oh, that is when I course corrected, uh-huh. or that's when I got on this path. It's so counterintuitive, but back when I did photography, for several years, I did 25, 26 shows, and which was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I know a lot of people still do that, but it was just that was not for me. But 
I was excited and new and, and, and frankly just had to do it to, to make money right. uh, at that stage. And at some point, uh, I began doing different work and doing uh, the digital work. I just like, I can't do 25 shows. So I cut down to 16. Right. And I realized I made just as right. much money doing 16 as I did make 25 because I was more prepared. I was fresher. I was fresher for the audience. Yeah. And then I was, my work was fresher. And then I cut it down to nine shows. Dolan Diamond and I were sitting in Denver in a restaurant. And I said, I'm on the 13th. He goes, I will too. <laughs> we kind of made that commitment. And I ended up canceling two and I did nine. And I okay. did just as much doing nine as I did doing 16. Doing 16. And because I just, again, it was the same thing. I was fully stopped. I was fresh. I could talk to customers. I, you know, I don't sit down. I just, I walk and pace and talk right. and engage the whole time. I mean, yeah. and that's, but it's hard to do that if you're doing 16 or much less 25 shows. Yeah, it's impossible to do. I remember meeting you when you were doing photography and, and I don't think, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't read the 25 shows on you, but you could definitely read it on me when I was just plopped down in my chair. I was going to ask, like, as far as like cutting your shows down to nine, if you get that run that, that typically it's a June run, but if you get that old town, lakefront, Des Moines, Cherry Creek, a lot of people feel like, oh, I've got to do it. I've got to, I've got to just go and, and do the whole run. How do you feel about that? Like, how do you put together a schedule of nine shows? Well, it, I mean, it's changed over years. Yeah. You know, I did Old Town, Des Moines, and Cherry Creek for years, and finally dropped uh, Des Moines as much as I hated to. I love sure. the show. I love the director. Uh, I always had a great reception there. I would just crawl to Cherry Creek, just so exhausted. And my inventory's depleted. I'm exhausted. And I go, okay, I probably took at least a third of what I would have done at Cherry Creek away by then the morning. Right. And at some point it's like, well, how much am I really making at Des Moines if I added that third from Cherry Creek? And so that was kind of my, my decision that I, I felt like I was losing enough at Cherry Creek that I would make up a lot of what I'm losing at Des Moines if I dropped it at Cherry Creek because I'd be fresh and have a full body of work. That's what I felt about Sausalito too. Like, um, I mean, some people loved that, that Sausalito show, but I drove all the way out there from Virginia at the time and then had to do the cannonball run back to St. Louis. And as I was doing St. Louis, I'm like, and I had a decent show at Sausalito, but obviously I'm exhausted from the drive. Right. Um, I had to drive through fires in the Sierra Nevadas. And I mean, it was just a nightmare. <laughs> like I planned on going hiking in the Sierra Nevadas, but they were on fire. So I d <laughs> instead I went to the brewery. So not exactly, um, still fun, not, not the health kick that I needed, but um, exactly. I don't know. I, I got to St. Louis. I'm like, there is nothing in my booth. At the end of the show that I sold at Sausalito that I could not have uh, sold at St. Louis. I'm like, I could have just done one. Yeah, I think that's the formula for me. Anyway. And, and as far as Old Town, after I think 14 years, Old Town decided they, that I was done there. <laughs> I, I didn't actually make that decision to the best of my knowledge. Right. <laughs> they forced you into retirement. And they, they said, yeah, we're, you're done here. It happens. WWDTD. What would Daryl Thetford do has become one of the running conversations throughout the course of this year. And thanks, Daryl, and we appreciate your pearls of wisdom. All right, the next section of this episode 
we talked to a couple show directors this year who are real friends of the artist community. In the first clip, Will talks to Stephen King from the Des Moines Arts Festival back in 2021. At that point, we weren't even sure if the summer season was going to be open for business. Stephen talks about all of the protocols and everything they went through to get that going. In the second clip, I talk with Cindy Lyric in her episode titled The Art Fair Fixer. Both of these episodes really gets to the heart of the symbiotic relationship that we have between the show directors and the artists out here on the road. I feel like some artists do have kind of an unnecessarily contentious relationship with show directors. So how do you deal with that without getting bitter? I mean, I'm sure you have to deal with some challenging personalities on the street. Like, how do you do that without getting just hating artists in general? Am I bitter? Are you, no, I'm saying you're no, not. No, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> give me a few minutes. Just give me. No. <laughs> <All right. laughs> like, well, who are we talking about? Yeah. You know, Will, I got to say one of the, one of my favorite things and one of the reasons I'm still in this business is Thursday. Yeah, I love load in. It's like a big family reunion, isn't it? It is. I mean, you guys get to experience it every single week. I get it once a year. For some of the people that I see, I've known them for every year I've been involved in the the art fair industry from way back in Fort Worth, right? So I really enjoy that part. There will always be some folks who will, especially post-jury. Right. And I do have a file. Yes, I do. Um, (laughs) My wall of shame, I'll say, of just, you know, 2 a.m., drunken rants that I received via via email about why, 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 why didn't I accept them into the show? And that's hard. That's That part's hard because a lot of times we do take that personally. I know we shouldn't because we right. have a jury and somebody else selects the work. And that, that's really true, really is true. Um, the, you know, some of my favorite artists who I've got work here in my house have not always been in the show. Right. I know I do, and some of my fellow directors, we do take that personally, and we do try to work on how we can better communicate things and and how we can, but you're just not going to get away from it, right? If you've got 1,100 artists, 1,200 artists applying for the show, and you've only got 150 spaces, some people are going to be angry at you. Right. Um, and we understand that. We we understand that that a rejection email means that they have to rethink mortgage or a car payment or, you know, all of those different things. And we understand and we appreciate that. So, just, so I guess to answer your question, I, I, I take it, you know, I take it in. I know when it's going to happen. It's going to happen post-jury. Right. Um, there's a reason why we issue acceptance and regret letters on Friday afternoon at five o'clock. <laughs> I, you know, I was going to ask you about that because I, that is so, so common. I mean, there's a week right there, you know, where everybody's kind oh of like at the end of the day. And it's like, I can kind of see, are you guys just sitting there with your finger on the, you're yeah, like, oh, pretty much. God. And we and turn our computers off as soon as we hit the enter button. <laughs> <laughs> that that really answers yeah. a big question for me because yeah. we have always yeah. wondered that. And I always feel yeah. like you should be able to have a like maybe the, the announcement should be made like Oscars style. You know, and there should be like the losers lounge and we're over there we're like, oh, I can't believe I didn't get into this. And, ah. and you know, oh, go over there and drown your sorrows with your friends instead of making the uh, drunken emails. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So I started reaching out to people 
for sponsorship. And one of my sponsors turned to be mentors said to me, you know, you really need to get your name out in front of the artisans. And he's like, well, go to the Edina art fair. Mm-hmm. You just walk in, say, hi, I'm Cindy. I'm the new executive director of the Uptown art fair and just have a conversation. He said, mm-hmm. you're known in the running community. Now you got to get known in this community. So I go to Edina on Friday afternoon. Edina's either raining and humid or hot and humid. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I live in this area, so I do the local shows. And I will say that I've experienced the Cindy Lyric visit. I've experienced it in St. Louis. I've experienced it here in the Twin Cities. And no other show director does that. No one comes and says, hey, we're looking forward to you being part of our show. It, it's a nice it's a nice personal touch. Well, thanks. <laughs> My first time, it was not the greatest <laughs> no. experience. Okay. So I walked in and I did not know this person. And I walked up and I had uptown garb on. You know, I was like, oh, this is what I learned in rollerblade. You look the piece, you walk the walk, you talk the talk. Okay. So I'm all decked out in uptown and I'm like, hi, I'm Cindy. Um, I'm the new executive director of the Uptown Association. And this person just starts screaming at me what and he's like just so upset about everything in the show and i remember my eyes were getting bigger and bigger and in my head i'm going like smile and nod smile and nod take take it in don't cry don't cry it was that bad oh Oh, it was horrid it was horrid so i went out of that booth took a deep breath and then went to the next booth okay and same thing. Not like, oh, nice to see you. Oh, I'm gl- glad to meet you. Thank you for stopping by. Just everything or, horrid about Or even the show. just say, hey, I'm glad you're here. I want to tell you a couple things that you could do better. It was like this, this reaction that was just over the top. <laughs> Went to the third one and I could not hold it back. I just okay. started bawling, just oh. crying. The kind of crying where you're (laughs) (laughs) and I like got out of there and I went to my car and I I had my uh my running stuff threw on my running hat threw on my running jacket called the mentor and said hey this is not going good I'm only going to now go and talk to people that have smiles on their face and I'm not telling them who I am (laughs) (laughs) Uh, After that, I took what people had said, and I just started asking a lot of questions. You took that that initial abuse, but then you kept the conversation going with artists to really know, well, what do they need? What will make a good event? And then you could balance that with business sense on honing in on where to start tackling the, the benchmarks of what will make this show better. Yeah, I was very fortunate that I had that help. And and that I listened. Yeah. I had an artist group too, a committee group that had been around working with artists for a while. And it took them a while to understand the plan because change is hard. And right. I was a person who was going to instrument some change for some people who had been there for a long time. And my transition into that group wasn't like easy peasy. It took a while. And I was yeah. questioned over everything I was trying to do from reducing booths to having a more transparent jury. Right. Yeah. If I was going to do this, I'm kind of that person. 
I needed to do it the best I could. And I had to have all the information. I'm a, a lifetime learner. I have to yeah. be sure I'm covering all my bases. Mm-hmm. And so I was just out there searching. I did not like the jury process. So I called people up and said, hi, I want to come and see how your show is juried. I'll volunteer. I'll buy myself in. I will stay. And I'll, I'm coming on this date. And right. I would just show up. <laughs> well, that. That takes a lot of guts and not a lot of ego either, because sometimes our egos get in the way and they say, I want these people to think I know what I'm talking about. And here you are being willing to say, I don't have the answers. I want to learn from you. I did that so much. And I still do that. But I did that when I first got there. David Pinson was at Cherry Creek. He ran. He was in a business district. I was in a business district. Okay. I just called David up and said, can I come to your office and just shadow you? Yeah. I didn't know this man at all. I mean, right. <laughs> I right. did. And- but you saw the parallels between what you do, what he does, and also you kind of aspired to growing Uptown into their model. So it would be beneficial to go check it out. Yeah. For me, I wanted to be the best we could be. And to do that, I had to set goals and I had to set objectives. And I had to know what was good. I had mm-hmm. to understand what the largest stakeholder, the artists were saying was good. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't do that if I didn't experience it. All right. So being the best we can be, that is another theme that kind of followed us through the year. In the next two clips, we speak first with Michael Schwegman in his episode, Striving to Be Better. He talks about that drive to do the best to improve in his craft, and talks a little about the shadow side of that. Next, we speak with Helen Gottlieb in her episode titled Carving Out the Details. Uh, She's talking about integrating multiple techniques to push herself beyond the limits of, of what she was creating previously and always getting better at what she does. I was always really good at school. Tested at the highest, the 99th percentile kind of thing. Yeah. So I was just always assumed I would go do some sort of professional, you know, in quotes kind of thing. And so I went up there and I thought, well, maybe I'd be like a math and English teacher, you know, something real heavy yeah. and intelligent because I was sticking really the academics. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, I was just really good at math and really good at kind of everything in school. And, uh, but then when I was up there, I uh, did some ceramics. I wanted to do some art and I really liked it. And, you know, I had a background in in construction my dad was a carpenter so i grew up around doing you know hands-on stuff but you know you know at that age growing up in the 80s you know it was like well don't don't be a worker you know you want to use your brain not your hands okay you know don't be crawling around in the sawdust like me you know you need to be a professional right like that you know that's what you're getting (laughs) taught you know i mean that's what i was taught your dad wanted you to he wanted you to have like a desk job he didn't want you to follow right like right to be more successful this is you know like sounds like the very beginning of a um you know the biopic like the classic by i don't want you to be like me son exactly right get this dirt under your fingernails yeah yeah well i didn't know and we we have a brother and sister and we you know we admired him because he was, you know, he was a cool dude and, and worked uh, hard. And, you know, we, he'd be on TV sometimes and the camera crews would come around and film, like, for some news story about unions or something like that. And they're like, oh, my God, he's on TV. He's so cool. You know, like, we thought yeah. that was so cool because Dad's on TV. It was a big deal. And right. then, uh, but then he'd come back and be like, I don't want to ever see you on TV like that. <laughs> you know, go to college and be a smart guy and got into ceramics. And, uh, 
really liked it. And, you know, I had an affinity for it and I was really good at it and got a bit obsessed about it. I remember having a conversation with you at um, some restaurant or bar uh, after a show at one point. And I mean, you, your aesthetic and your work ethic, and, and it, clearly you get that from your dad, you know, that, that yeah, kind of like blue-collar a work, ethic. work ethic. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I remember you talking about your drive to create. I mean, even kind of cutting into relationships that you've had, like that that drive I wanted to talk about, too, just to, to make a certain, I don't know, to get better, that drive to, to, to get to where you want it to be. Oh, right. Yeah, well, yeah, whatever. How would we define success? But I guess trying to be, I don't know, try to get as good, you know, to be the best in the field, whatever the hell, yeah. that, whatever the hell that means, right? Like, I, I don't right. even know if there's a, a reasonable metric for that, but. I went to Jesuit high school. And so the idea is, you know, you are the best, you know, you have to be the best, right? Like you're going to go to Harvard, you're going to go win a Nobel prize. I mean, that's, you know, these kind of these metrics and that was some idea I had to be the best. And, and really, yeah, like you said, uh, mentioned, you know, four wins, personal relationships, just to improve the work, improve the craft, you know, I mean, part right. of our obsession in terms of making the artwork and, and it's like, Hey, I got another idea. I got another idea. How can I be better, better, better? A lot of Saturday nights, yeah, just being in the studio all night, thinking like, okay, well, after I get this part done, I'll, I'll then I'll go out, and then well, then I'll right. go out, and then about then it's four a.m. Like I'm still in the studio, and it's like, oh, okay, well, miss that weekend again. Yeah. You know, I had girlfriends who would call and be like, hey, like, would you just come over and see me for a minute? You know, <laughs> and be like, um, yeah, but after I go to the studio, and of course they'd be like, well, wait a minute, you'd rather go to the studio than than bang and. <laughs> It's like, well, I, that's yeah. the drive, right? That's I mean, that's, dri- that's a yeah. real drive. And, and it's, you know, it sounds ridiculous, uh, but, you know, it's like, well, part of my brain was like, well, there'll always be opportunity to bang, but not always opportunity to make work, <laughs> which is completely ridiculous. But yeah, but that's, that's you the, feel like going back in the time machine and be like, God, I wish there was more time to bang. Is, I, well, yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. You know, you, you need your bang time higher than your work time. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah, that is, I, yeah, that would be definite and there's regret there because ultimately you want to have human connections and, and, yeah. and relationships and but you know i also certainly don't regret being good at what i do right but putting in the, the tens of thousands of hours you know, that's taken me to you know develop the technical skills and recipes i have for, for my specific work but then also you know the skill set or the knowledge and the thought and i have a certain philosophy about what i do and why i do right. it and, that you don't get that by you know going out and partying, and I'm not saying that one's better than the other. That's just choice. No, no, you know, I, choices I'm with made. you. Yeah, and I mean, I, you know, and it's gotten you to where you are. And yeah, yeah. Honestly, I'm like always in this weird competition, like with myself. And to me, the awards don't really matter. I just want to like keep working and make my my work grows, and I feel good about it. It's great if I get acknowledged, but if I don't get acknowledged with awards, I don't really care as long as I can sell enough to keep having this life that I love. Does that put any added pressure onto you? Like, well, I got acknowledged for this show. Now I need to continue at that level or I need to make something better. Or does that get in your head at all? No, no. I think that it's more about, I hope that every time I make work, you know, each new piece is better. But like, I think it's just like every group of work you hope gets better. And, you know, within that group, sometimes there's, there's ones that you feel like you really hit and then other ones you're like that is the one that's like taking me somewhere you know it's like my idea is I can feel it's leading somewhere but I'm not quite there yet but like all those pieces need to happen it's like a journey 
Mm. You know, it's it's like uh, being in a laboratory and just like, you know, putting things together and say, what if I do this? What's going to happen? And just this. And then like, oh, I like that out- outcome. Like I should use a little bit more of that and like move to this thing. So if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like you're really you're really deep in the process and the learning from the materials and the learning from the design and the external part of it does not play a role in your process. Yeah, most definitely. I'm I'm more interested in in the work and and like I said if I get acknowledged with an award, great. If I don't, that's fine too. If you were to step outside of yourself and view it as an outsider, why do you think there has been this recognition? What about your work has changed that stands apart because it's not just getting, you know, like a, a a little nod. These are like best in categories and best in shows. These are like getting the top tier type awards at great shows. I think some of it has to do with like, you know, when you learn about artwork and, and you learn different techniques or process, a lot of people are like, I'm just doing painting. I'm just doing etching. I'm just doing silkscreen. I'm just doing like, they just really stay like within this one little category or, uh-huh. or like even like in a section of a category. And what I'm trying to do with my more, more recent work is kind of turn it into this mixed media thing and say like, Oh, I like this thing that painting does. And I like this thing that printmaking does. And I like this thing that carving does. And I think that Maybe I'm getting acknowledged or because the work is a little bit different because I'm like putting all these different techniques together. Oh, there's an integration of different mm-hmm. things to create a, a direction maybe that hasn't been seen. Yeah. And people get surprised. They're like, oh, is that 3D? Is that carved? Wait, how do you do? Because like, I think when people see 2D work, they just want to say like, oh, that's a painting. And then they like look close and then they get kind of confused because they're like, wait. Like in my booth, like most of the time, instead of even talking about what the artwork is about or what my uh, inspiration is, a lot of time I just, you know, talk about technique because Mm. people don't know what they're looking at, which is fine. It's kind of good to just be able to engage with people and and, uh, keep them, you know, interested. Interested. And just like learn more about artwork in general. Then at that point, I was like, you know, let me just not just talk about the physical but how i felt on the inside too so i started creating drawings that showed my emotions because i know these emotions that lead to the physical changes you know if i feel Mm -hmm. stress more spots come out so i also created a drawing which is with the animal within that talks about when i really feel stressed about it Yeah. yeah So I was, I now felt this could be a life series because this, this situation is something that could last for a lifetime. It could stop by itself, you know, but at that point, this situation kind of burned um, another purpose for my art and mm-hmm. created that series that I felt I could start. So I called it Black Metamorphosis, which is changes mm-hmm. and my melanin journey, which is me losing my melanin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was wow. how the whole stuff started. Wow. I would also anticipate that your pieces take so long to make. Yeah. So you spend so much time on that self-portrait with what you're going through with with the skin changes and you're working on the shading and you're working on the detail. Was there actually a period of actual acceptance and loving the image that you were seeing in front of you? So it wasn't just about the revealing it to people. It was also about you not feeling like it was something you didn't like anymore. You know what I mean? Like, were you falling in love with that image? All right. So it was two parts. The self-portrait one, 
whenever I started doing it, it was a mixture of fighting against myself and loving myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that 170 hours is a mixture of, I don't want to do this. Should I really do this? And another part telling me, spend your time and enjoy and choose to love these spots. You can feel the emotion part and you can also feel how detailed it was because I really wanted to draw it and own it and mm-hmm. accept every detail through my art because that was my outlet generally. So I was pouring out the emotions and making sure I spend as much time as I can to draw that spot that I could see as a form of I'm accepting you. I'm putting my time. I'm investing my time to accept you. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I cried. Even when I even finished this piece, it took me a while to post it. Mm-hmm. Because it was just like, it was just like an insecurity, you know? I just don't want to post for it. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you really, you almost seem like you embraced that too, that insecurity through these TikTok videos. Another one I found really interesting was you decided that you would face the viewer and you would take a clipper and shave your head so that you and the viewer at the same time could see what vitilago has done through your scalp. Yes. So it was such a revealing moment of vulnerability mm-hmm. saying, I'm going to share this with you, see how I can be vulnerable. And that was another one that just went crazy across the internet. Yes. So whenever I could finally show my face and for those mm-hmm. two years, I kind of knew something is happening on my head, of course, you know, but I had mm-hmm. not, that was, you know, steps, you know, different steps. So I could mm-hmm. face, face mm-hmm. one, but um, I was always leaving my hair, always wearing hats and stuff like that. And it was not about me anymore at that point when I saw the way, you know, people reacted to it and the way it could help other people. So that really, really boosted my spirit to be like, okay, you know what? Now, let me finally see what has been under my hair. And I feel that would also help me out in accepting this process and also help others out. So for that particular one, I didn't do it beforehand. I decided to do it at the same time I was posting the TikTok. Yeah, live time. <laughs> live time, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was Jerby Andrew Jaja, who we lovingly refer to as Jaja. In his episode, The Big Reveal, Jaja talks about how he used his artwork to help him come to terms with the changes in his skin through vitiligo. He has his foot firmly planted in the art show world, so all eyes on on Jaja. Another set of conversations that we had on the podcast this year focused on race and on social issues. Here's a clip from William Kwamina Poe's episode titled A Look Through the Window, followed by Art Fair DNA featuring Mickey Cunningham and her daughter, Reiko Yucatel. Yeah, I mean, I love Texas. I love mm-hmm. to do shows. I have had great shows in Texas. So the laws change. So all of a sudden, it's like you have this open carry laws where people walk around with guns and stuff like that. Yeah, It's not a comfortable zone for me. I was not part of, of the foundation fathers who wrote this laws about the right to bear arms. But yeah. somewhere along those lines, I feel like those laws were specifically targeted at people, of enslaved people, so that they will be kept in place. Now, a lot yeah. of people tell me, yeah, it's different, it's whatever, whatever, whatever it is. This is the only country that I know that has that kind of a law, that you have a right to bear arms. 
You right. know, I don't know about it. I've not read the Magna Carta or whatever for other other for Britain <laughs> right. or for any other place. Yeah. You know? But the issue to me boils down to this. Why do you need a gun now when you want the police and you want the police to still be enforced and you still want the police to be militarized and you still want the police to get bigger? So if you need all these things, why do you still want to have a right to bear arms? If you have a gun, keep it at home. Fine. Right. They say, well, if I go out, I might get shot, so I'm carrying my gun. You know, the moment you, you buy a gun, in my opinion, and you have a gun in your pocket or in your backpack, part of you says that I believe I can kill somebody. And it's been used for years to target people of color to keep us in our place, quote unquote. You have to remember, every time a black person is carrying a gun or shows that he's carrying a gun, the police or any other major force in that city or that country or whatever wants to make sure they kill you. They said right. every citizen has a right to bear arms. But if we all do, why is that when I'm carrying it, I'm more dangerous, twice as dangerous than the person right. who's just white carrying the gun? So it makes me very uncomfortable to go to Texas. I would love to go back to Texas. But, you know, I feel like I can stay within a certain zone, a certain place and, and be OK. You know, even when I'm driving, going to shows, it's, you know, ever since Trump came into power, Billy Joel said, we didn't start the fire. It was burning before we got here. And so true, yeah. Trump did not start it. It was burning and it's always been going on. But now he just blew it up and made it right. like, tell the cops, yeah, knock them upside the head when they do something. When you arrest them, just give them, you know, hit them harder. Yeah. So when you drive, you feel like you always have to be watching yourself because you get stopped not for doing something wrong. But just for being a black man driving. Just driving you know? while black. Yeah. Driving while black. So it's like you never know when you're going to get pulled over. So you always have to be careful. The blessings of the good Lord is what's keeping me and a lot of us alive. Because, yes, at the end of the day, that's what we have to do. So, yeah, I, I worry about it. Yeah, I worry about it every day. Yeah. It's kind of the ugly side of what we do for a living or right. what, what right. you have to go through. But do you have to work in extra time? Do you get stopped pretty frequently when you're when you're going to shows? Or is it a certain area that you will get stopped more? Or? I got stopped about two years ago. That was the last time I got stopped. And I was coming from a small show I did in Athens. And the cop said, and this was right here in Georgia, because yeah. Athens right here. And I was coming and he said to me, I didn't see your seatbelt. So I just want to check and see that you had a seatbelt on. And I said, yeah. He says, how's your day? And I'm like, it was, it's not great. I had a lousy show. But the good thing with artists is that you can always sell it tomorrow. <laughs> so I'm okay. You know, you know, yeah. I just try to make conversation with him and try to make him at ease okay, and all this stuff. And then see my license, which I'd already pulled out. And so I gave it to him. He checked it and says, all right, old man, have a nice day. And I said to mm. myself, well, if this gray beard is going to keep me alive, <laughs> then we got to make sure we have more on my face. Because the mentality is he's older, he's not a threat, whatever. If that gives me the reason to feel safe, right. more power. You know, but again, all kinds of people have been killed for no reason. You have older men have like my age have been stopped. So you never know yeah. what's what. But this year when I start this time when I'm driving more so than anything else, yes. I try to drive yeah. during the day as much as I can, because you feel like if you drive during the day and somebody pulls you, you get pulled over. There's more witnesses to help you. You just keep on right. being prayerful. 
I, I wanted to bring it up just because, you know, I, part of the podcast is is to kind of understand each other's experience and exactly. what goes on. And it, yeah. it's like the last person that I spoke with was Daryl Thetford. And then he and I are, mm-hmm. are talking about putting together a schedule and just, you know, to recognize the privilege that we have in not having to think about that, you know, and just to have more right. empathy right. for each other and our experiences. Last time I was in Fort Worth, I see a family of of open carry walking down. There was like a bubble of nervous energy around all of the guns in this family that's carrying their their guns and a little boy who's carrying an assault rifle. Mm -hmm. And you never know what's going to trigger that kind of thing in in Mm -hmm. public. And clearly they're doing that Mm -hmm. just to make people feel uneasy right. just to take that to to your level and to understand what you go through too thank you so much for having me and, and, and having this conversation on, on all kinds of levels because it is, it is important and i know that you know we cross people all the time and i probably have met dealt with a lot of people who have guns but i didn't know that they had guns on them and try to deal with people on an easy level because i don't want confrontation i'm one of those who i just don't even even when i have small confrontations with people that are friends and I still have to deal yeah. with it, I have a problem dealing with it, you know? So then, then just imagine getting angry and going out there and trying to fight with somebody in the street who, who you never know who has got. So it's right. tough. You know? It yeah. is. You've made your living out on the road, setting up your work and interacting with, with collectors. Did you ever experience any personal struggles with interacting with the public, either with your race or with your gender? In the early years, you know, I was fairly young, like 22. Uh, I found that people didn't really take me very seriously at the shows. Mm. I remember experiencing that. I never quite felt the respect. You know, I was young. Obviously, I mustn't need to earn it. So I did come across that. Uh, being an agent, um, you know, I had a lot of comments, things like, is this made in China or just maybe to spark a conversation or they just want to say something. Uh, those things really never bothered me. I just kind of let it go. Uh, so whether it was yeah. prejudice on their intention or I, I just, I didn't make a big deal out of it. Or ignorance. Yeah. And do you think it's that you wanted to just not have confrontation on that area and just kind of let it move on and just and and just you know not let it right let it affect I am you. not a confrontation person you know being an orphan I got teased a lot so from early age so mm. when people made remarks or whatever I just kind of let it go it just didn't matter <laughs> yeah okay did you have any um challenges in the past year with the uh pandemic and and you know, the comments yeah. about the China virus? You know, uh, I did not have any kind of personal attack on me, but myself, uh, the challenges were, you know, I feel more vulnerable out there. I had more fear. I guess, you know, I've never experienced that fear of the prejudice being Asian, but I did last year. I was in Florida and I was trying to get back to Iowa. It took me probably two weeks to contemplating like how am I going to travel, um, you know, stopping to get gas, hotels. I had to really think about all that for the first time in my life. And um, it was really uncomfortable, um, upsetting. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, even still our whole family, you know, Reiko being half Korean, um, and we've had kind of this discussion. Um, 
And I think we are all just a little bit more careful of our surroundings. I've always admired, Reiko, you see, the perception I have of you is that you're kind of fearless. I mean, I was setting up a show and it was late and I was getting ready to wrap things up and I observed you just getting to the show and setting up at, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock at night, you're by yourself. And I'm, I, part of me was like, should I offer to stay and help her? But you seem like you're, you were good and you had it all under control. Can you talk a little bit about the vulnerabilities of traveling as a woman? Yeah, so definitely have always had safety on the mind. You know, if I start to get drowsy while driving, I really have to pay attention to where I want to stop and nap. And, you know, and if I do nap in my van, like, can somebody see me? And I just, uh, I try not to put myself in a vulnerable spot. You know, I, I do carry protection as far as the little kitty cat keychain thing mm -hmm. and uh, I have a couple knives in my van. Yeah. yeah, you feel like you have a way to defend yourself because, yeah, you can't just, you know, naively walk into things. You have to have a plan. Right. And before I ever open my door, if it's late at night, you know, I look around and see what other vehicles are there. So that way I'm not caught off guard. Mm -hmm. You know, I always have to be the proactive one, at least at shows. You know, it's such a comfortable setting because that's what I've been doing my whole life, whether helping mom and dad at a show with their work and then, you know, continuing with my work. It just it's so familiar that um, I, I feel fairly safe. Mm -hmm. You've grown up with watching your mom go off and do shows on her own and, you know, bring you that you and too. Luke. So, I mean, maybe it just was that example never even made you think that it it's anything to even have a red flag about. Right. And, you know, all of us develop such a relationship that, you know, the other artists become family and always talking to see who's going to be at the show mm -hmm. and, you know, who's camping, who's staying where. So there's always some kind of outreach that, you know, if something happens, I've got someone to go to. So that's always very comforting. Jenna, how do you feel being like the background artist? You're the support, but Signe's kind of up front. She's got the painting out front. She's got the composition. And so she, I know she probably gets a lot of the love where you're like, yeah, but I supplied a lot of the energy and the, um, the palette too. Uh, how does that feel for you? Like uh, kind of being behind the scenes? Well, you're a music man. So yeah. I feel like a composer basically. So I write the tunes, let her write the lyrics, and she's a frontman, so she gets to sing them too. <laughs> but at the end, it's a single piece, right? Of art. So right. That's that's a probably pretty accurate description. I mean, I've got my Stones uh, sweatshirt on, so I'm kind of thinking about. But you don't have, you don't get Mick without Keith. Yes, true. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's the those are the two parts. It's like the the energy, the the backing, the backing track is 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 everything too, as well as the performance. You know, the performance on the front. Yeah. You know, I haven't made a painting without Yenna in in twenty years. So, I mean, it's a it's definitely an incredibly like symbiotic situation at this point. And you know, I give Yenna an awful lot of credit for the the success of our of our body of work and. I think what he's saying is a really good metaphor. It's definitely like that music and lyrics type of a relationship. Also, I think personality wise, like I just tend to be really kind of a hard driver, like a type A person. And I think Gena yeah. just tends to be 
he's just more easygoing than me. So he yeah. just lets me be all crazy and run stuff. <laughs> Luckily, it works pretty well. Well, that's what's really cool about you guys personally, too, because your artwork, your, I'd say in artwork, you're type A. And then when you're out selling, um, I mean, for a long time, I kind of knew you as more of an introvert, Signe. You were more of uh, you were more quiet, and Gena was the salesman, and and so to hear you describe yourself as Type A is pretty interesting. Would you have you grown into that, or is that I'm more still of a, extremely um, introverted, and um, that's definitely you know one of the places where Gena kind of shines and and is oftentimes a little more upfront is in our you know basically in in the in the show situation and also kind of in our, our social life as well. Like he tends to be the, the more upfront one. So I think when I say type A, I kind of mean more about just the fact that I'm kind of a control freak and like to sort of be in charge. <laughs> so it's less about that. Right. Um, yeah. She sets the agenda. Yeah. I'm the agenda setter. Yes, for sure. <laughs> Um, but also, right. you know, I can't give Gena enough credit. Like he, he also participates in the harvesting of the images that we're going to use, uh, as reference for the work. So he's very much also mm. in that, um, sort of upfront, what are we going to do? What's it going to look like? Like he participates in that part as well. And, you know, also does so much of the physical work of our work. You know, he, very lovingly builds all of the supports, does all of the framing, has been doing all the coordinating around the shows as well. So I think we're pretty good. We're pretty equally yoked with each other. I think you are. I mean, that's it's it's amazing because you've got that. Um, I don't know. You've got the upfront part of type A in the artwork and then the kind of the behind the scenes type A and you get to be type A with him. And then when you're showing it off, then he can kind of take over and be type A when you can you can be the underpainting when you're actually at the show and, and be the support. Um, it, it works really well. It doesn't work really well for everybody, but you guys have that. It's it's an appreciation that is, uh, I don't know, fairly rare. We've all been next to the the art show artist where you, you get you're like the husband and wife team next door that you're like, oh, my God, how in the hell? I mean, we've been, we've been those people too. Well, I'm sure there have been some people next to us. They were like, Oh geez, Louise, uh, especially early on. But I feel like those bugs got worked out pretty quickly for us. Like within the first couple of years, most of the fighting has come around trying to put up a tent, you know, or actually like the technical and physical challenges of it so that has been where we've had the most kind of trouble but at this point it's been so long that it's much more that's all pretty wordless and and effortless at this point thank goodness putting up a tent is like i mean with two people it's like trying to dock a boat or back up a trailer yeah it's a nightmare that was signy and gena grushevenko their episode was titled partners in paint And I know a thing or two about working with your spouse in your art business. Just like the two of them, Renee and I, we both design the work and execute the work and and how you navigate through that. There were lots of conversations this year with all different kinds of partnerships in this industry. Couples who work on separate bodies of work, couples like Dolan and Allie Marie Guyman from last week's episode, where one of them is the person who's in charge of the business and the other one is in charge of the art. 
that's been a big topic for us this year. This next clip that I had with my friend Amber Marshall, fellow glass blower, it's titled, If It's Easy, I'm Usually Not That Interested, which perfectly sums up the mentality of a glass blower. I am also very out of touch and I know that it's an incredible tool to use, but I just can't do it. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just yeah. like, haven't been able to jive with it. And I, I actually hired someone last summer to sort of help me work through that. That's why there's as many glass posts as there are now, but I was mm-hmm. kind of a bad client. Right. Cause it seems like we're used to using it on our own kind of like what we like to look at, you know, personally and professionally. But when we try and use it as a a means to represent our work, the thing that drives us all crazy that, well, how many people engaged, it can send you to the nut house. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't feel like a healthy arena for me (laughs) as an anxious person. And also, like, I never joined Facebook for that reason. Like I Mm -hmm. knew that I couldn't at the time I thought, Oh, I can't handle this. I don't think I should dip my toes in this, Mm -hmm. but then I, yeah, Instagram's the same for Mm -hmm. me. I want to get more comfortable because it's ridiculous not to use it. Yeah. And using it in the right way and, and all that kind of stuff. It's a learning experience. I admire all the people that can and do use it to sell work and promote shows. It's like, it's such a skill and I don't know why I make it so hard for myself. It's like I'm always tripping over my own feet or like, I don't, I don't know why I make it so fucking hard for me to just do it. You know, post, you're going to a show post, you got an award, like just, it's not that hard, you know? Well, I wonder, you talk a lot about how coming from the Midwest really affects your relationship with glass and, and you really identify with being a Midwesterner. That kind of Midwestern mentality is not one to like toot your own horn and and do an Instagram post. Look how great I am. It kind of feels really foreign and uncomfortable. Yeah, well, yes and no. I think that there's also some personality traits in there that squished in with the Midwesternness. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm sure there's something to that. That's the other thing that I don't even understand about being Midwestern is like, what can I attribute to my geographical upbringing and what is actually just me, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I mean, I'm with you on that. I'm with mm-hmm. you on that. Well, when I read what you said about your relationship with glass and coming from the Midwest, it's like from kind of that blue collar mentality that getting your hands dirty, working really hard, trying to solve problems, being stubbornly independent, wrestling this material that we work with this glass to get an outcome. And at the end of the day, we've just, you know, we've just been run through the ringer and you kind of feel like, okay, I've accomplished something today because my body is wiped out. I'm tired. I've, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I am very attracted to that quality of glass blowing a little bit less so as I'm getting older, but that's what brought me into it at first. And I'm also attracted to like backpacking for days, you know, it doesn't sound like a vacation for a lot of people, but I like it when it kind of hurts a little bit. And then when you're Mm -hmm. done, the pizza tastes the best that you've ever had. And Mm -hmm. that kind of thing feels rewarding for me. If it's Mm -hmm. easy, I'm usually not that interested. Oh, okay. Do you have an athletic background? 
Yeah, actually, I grew up uh, playing volleyball and basketball and played volleyball almost year round on travel teams and stuff. Mm-hmm. I found that a lot of my friends that are glass blowers are clay artists, um, mm. grew up as athletes. Have you found um, that? My wife and I have different connections to glass for different reasons. And she comes to it because of being a soccer player. And she was in art school and she did all different kinds of mediums, but nothing really fit until she saw glass blowing. And it was the physicality of glass blowing that hooked her from the second she started it. And so I've always thought there is kind of a draw to people who are in athletics because we're like, you know, doing one thing with one hand while we're working with the other hand and we're moving through space and it's a total dance. The glass is moving and we're moving and it's a coordinated kind of thing. And also one thing that I think about is that I spent most of my childhood and teenage years doing practice and skills Mm -hmm. You know, like Mm -hmm. you go to volleyball practice and you do the same skill over and over and over and over Mm -hmm. and over and over again. And then you finally see some improvement. And that's the exact same with glass blowing. You know, if you want to learn how to drop a blown foot, you do it for three hours for weeks, you know, Uh and then Uh even then you might still suck, but it's still right. Or I think about when we try and experiment with new work and you take that time, let's say we're going to set aside a week or two weeks and you think, okay, well, this is plenty of time to work through it. And you try some experimental stuff and you look at it and you're like, this is like student work. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Until Until you've refined it, there is that muscle memory of doing things over and over and over again before it can kind of become second nature. It's funny that you say that about student work. Since this is about art fairs, I'll bring it back to an art fair. But um, (laughs) I started making some new vessels. I guess it was 2011. I maybe got into some art fairs I shouldn't have. Mm -hmm. And um, my work was okay, but it wasn't refined. And, you know, years later, I'm still going to the same art festivals And this woman comes up to me (laughs) and is like, oh, you know what? I think I bought some of your work when you were just a student. (laughs) Did you show here when you were a student? And I was like, I was so mortified um, because, you know, yeah, sure. Whatever makes the story feel a little sweeter for her, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, oh, that's so embarrassing. No, I was probably out of school for like eight years already. (laughs) But it was just like, oh, shit. (laughs) That's embarrassing. I have a tendency when I don't have the kids, that's my production mode. And when it's my turn with my girls, then I'm, I'm dad. And I'm an artist when they're at school. But I'm, you know, full dad mode. So you got to make sure that all of that stuff stays up in the air and everything gets its proper attention or you're not, I don't know. How do you do it? I I don't do it well, I don't think. And I I feel, I mean, I don't know. I think I'm also really hard on myself and there is the whole baggage that that carries. Like as a a mom, right? Like we have this idea of like what moms are supposed to be capable and all the things that, you know, whatever. The minute I get home, I get Xander and I have 10 days to make as much work as I possibly can. And each piece I make is like about 16 to 20 hours. So I don't even know how I, I don't even understand how this all works out. And then it's full, like I just am working 
all the time. I'm juggling making meals. I have a 14 year old son who is, seems like he's always hungry. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Like I talk about it so much. Like, oh, Xander's hungry. By the time I clean up the kitchen and we eat totally different, like he's all meat and I'm all not. And so it's wow. like I'm making all the meals for like I'm making <laughs> six meals or five meals a day or more, or whatever. It's just like bonkers. So I, I don't do the balance well and I get stressed out mm-hmm. and I don't always handle it. Yeah. I, I feel like there's a lot of guilt. I feel like I carry around a lot of guilt, a lot of like looking back, like, Oh my gosh, am I, I mean, I think it goes to the point of like, I, I've always been a lover of kids, but yeah. I never actually intended to have any of them. Oh, wow. Own. Yeah. So I always wanted to be the best auntie or the best, <laughs> like, you know, friend of the, you know, like girlfriends, whatever, right. who have kids. And just like, I wanted all in on that. I was like, so into caring for my two younger sisters, because there's six of us total in my family. Wow. It's never been like, an I'm an anti-kid. I just know that how much I need for myself as an artist. Like I just, I could never quite square how I could make all that work. And I continually keep proving that to myself, even though I keep running up that mountain, I still am just like, but I'm not, I I can't do it all well or whatever. But you are doing it. You're, you're doing it. You're you're trying to stay focused, but it's like, I do the exact same thing to myself where I, I feel like, if I'm giving 60% to my kids and uh, 30% to my wife and that leaves 10% for my art, then I'm like, oh, I'm a shitty artist. No, I, I get the guilt, but it's like you have to you have to give yourself a break. We're doing the best we can. It's yeah. Hey, let's talk about uh, let's talk about how you got them skills. Let's uh, let's rewind the clock and, and oh, tell the, the Annie Bassoni story. Yeah, that's a f- that's kind of a fun story. And I feel like as I've gotten a little bit older and more introspective about stuff is like, I feel bad that my paternal grandmother hasn't seen where I've come with what she's taught me. So when I was eight years old is when, like, I'm sure like a, a lot of us listen to TED Talks or, you know, at least know what that is. And there's so much science out there that that talks about that recall that happens in our brains where we can look back to whatever we learned at around that age. And we can, we can already have this like foundation to work from. So it's like when people learn uh, an instrument or a language, that's why all those things are so important at that Mm -hmm. age too. So for me, I didn't have all of that, except I had sewing. I was the only one who like took to it. Wow. And she never gave me like any immediate satisfaction. And at that time, like what I really wanted was like some amazing jams, which is funny because I've never like <laughs> really been a short wearer. Yeah. But I was like, I had in my mind like like the super 80s print. Like I just knew like the look I was going for. You were going to be and so cool. I was and I had to wait so long. So she would take me to the fabric store. She would like show me how to read a bolt what the content was. I had to do all the laundry for it. I had to wash it. And she like made me iron it all and like cut out the powder. Like I had so much like ground level foundation skills that I kept building on. And the other thing about her is like she had such, and I didn't have the words for it then. And it kind of took me a while to come to it, but she, uh, she was so entrepreneurial and she lived through the depression. Oh, wow. She yeah. used to set 
like women's hair for like side. She had all these side hustles and she did ceramics and would sell like she would like do the sort of tchotchke molds and sell with plants at the, you know, when hospitals had like their whole gift shops Mm -hmm. like that was different. I remember helping her with that and she'd tell me what to glaze and like she had a kiln in her basement and she was always just making stuff. Yeah. I mean, in so many ways, like the things that she's into is like the things that I I'm into. (laughs) So (laughs) yeah, it's like, Oh, I wish that she could like, Oh my gosh. I like, look at me now. Like I'm doing this thing. Right. Yeah. I don't know. It's pretty, it's pretty great. That so. is really great. That's incredible. All right. That was Annie Bassoni in her episode titled Garment Builder, where she talks about the relationship with her grandmother and about being a mother herself and the and the and the guilt and the struggles. We had a lot of conversations like that over the course of the last couple of seasons, talking about the real life struggles that we deal with and also the relationships that got us into this business and and what's important to us. Well, we're getting to the end of the episode here today, and there's just a couple more clips. Uh, The next one is Betty Yeager, the boss. How attractive is it for us to be our own bosses and not answer to anyone else's rules? Or as Will would put it, we're just completely unhirable. To build upon that point, we also have Jay McDougall in his episode, Rare Birds, talking all about the unique qualities we need to be professional, independent artists. Thanks a lot for listening this week, you guys. I'm just going to let it roll right on out to the end with the final parting words being from our good friend, William Kwamenapo. Susie just looks her head up. She goes, Betty's here. And I was like, what? And I'm like, she goes, shh, listen. And then we listen. <laughs> and that's what we heard, like three aisles over. I'm like, Betty's coming. And then it was like a thunderstorm. It got a little louder. And I'm like, oh, yeah, here she comes. Yeah. It's coming. Yeah. It's yeah. And you're a force. I mean, and that's the thing. You're a social force, too. And so it, it kind of freaks me out that you're not out there doing shows. You've totally reinvented yourself as far as who you sell to and, yeah. and how do you do it. How to get the goods. Like, yeah. But you don't seem to be having any trouble. Nah. My, my people <laughs> know where to find me. They know how to find me. I, how, how'd you do it? I think it's because I only sold in person once upon a time. I yeah. don't have a website. My website's a Tumblr that I haven't touched in <laughs> two years, maybe. I think the other day yeah. somebody was like, yeah, your website's not working. And I'm like, what website? Uh, right. There's a reason that's not working. It doesn't bas- exist. Yeah, it's basically a page with my contact info. I think that putting myself in that position once upon a time when I was doing shows has only helped me make a little scratch. I never wanted a website where you could just go and see my entire collection of work. Uh, I didn't even know how to ship shit before the pandemic. (laughs) So I told everyone that I only shipped through FedEx as a deterrent because it would cost them $96 to have something shipped. (laughs) Nice. Two states over. That's not the case anymore. Thank you, USPS. No. You have not lost <laughs> any of my packages, and I love you. <laughs> not yet, right? Don't get cocky. Yeah, I know, but that's what I love about you, too. It's like there's something very kind of punk rock, uh, rock and roll about your work, uh, about your imaging, about the way you go about your business. And what I think is cool about that is that you refuse to kind of change that, even though you've had to change your, your business model. Yeah. 
uh, I've always kind of done what I wanted. You could probably ask Susie to attest to that because <laughs> yeah. she's known me for almost 20 years. Right. And, you know, it's like if you want a boogie, you got to pay the band, but I'm the band and I'm the boogie machine. So, like, <laughs> it's not going to be hard to title this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so i mean yeah i mean it's like you you've got this thing you're out there on instagram i've always felt um and i think you're the same way that if you want me you got to meet me and it's it's like we have to have a personal connection and if i'm having a shitty show then i'm looking at myself and be like well i'm sitting in my chair my arms are crossed uh i'm not engaging with anybody i'm not particularly likable uh okay get off your ass get up engage with the people open it up yeah and, and be yourself, you know, and yeah. how are you doing that online? I think I'm still following my own rules. You know, uh, for the longest time, I feel like I've heard you got to do this. You got to post every day. You got to you got to make reels. You got to do hashtags. And it's like, I don't have to do any of that if I don't want to. And you can follow that if you want, because it works for other people. But I think as artists, we all started doing this because we didn't want to have a fucking boss we don't right. want to have somebody telling us what to do when to do it and what pot to shit in and i still yeah. that whole thing of you got an audience fall and let them catch you right and that continues to work and you know i don't make normal shit and i don't work with normal people and no. always had that freak flag flying pretty high and i think it just got a little higher and this is really something that's very difficult to, for, for young artists to accept, that so much of what you have to do is rejection. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's part of the deal. And all of us, I, I think I can speak for all of us who have been doing this for a while, we've had probably as many failures as successes, mm-hmm. depending on how you measure it. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is, I firmly believe that Absolutely every one of those successes or failures had to happen in order for me to be where I am at this moment. For sure. I mean, that all made up where we are right now. And Mm -hmm. without any one of those, it would be a different place, I'm sure. And that just goes with the territory in virtually any field one pursues. Uh, And the art world is certainly no different. And and Mm -hmm. I could argue that it was probably even more so. Yeah. Uh, I don't I know, know if I've, your experience jives with that. But yeah. I would guess it does. Well, getting ready for our talk, I, I was putting a lot of thought into what we have in common. And I kind of felt like I was this college student again, you know, writing a literature paper and seeing all of these symbols and parallels. And I'm like, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm imagining them, but I, you know, just hearing a lot of the things you're saying really resonate with me. And that physicality in our work you know, the creation of glass, the the power tools and all the, the, the hard, heavy, noisy type work that you do, you know, to start taking layers away from your your, your wood. It, it is something we share. And I totally get that. You almost feel like a, a mechanic or a farmer or something. Yeah. It's really hard. But then we have that element of our work, too, where it's more delicate or there's different aspects involved to finishing the pieces and i think it's easy of course you know i work alone and and you i know you have renee but Mm -hmm. still it's oftentimes a very solitary endeavor i get a lot of time a lot of time to think and 
it's easy to think that what we do is pretty common, you mm-hmm. know, because we that's what we do. Because we do it, it occupies our headspace all day long. Yeah. It does. And it's like, well, there's really nothing to this. I'm just doing this. And I mean, I'm, you know, anybody could do this. But when you get right down to it, the different skill sets that have to come together in order for us to do what we do, mm-hmm. you know, not only have be able to handle the physical nature of it, be able to handle the mechanical and the technical nature of it, be able to follow it through from beginning of the process to the final created thing. And that's only half of it, Mm -hmm. because then we have to have those tools in our bag to go out and communicate with people, to market our work, to sell our work, to drive across the country, all of this. And when you put all of that together, we're really rare birds. Yeah. That's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And I think we take a lot of what we do for granted, or any way I do, in, until I really start to think about it. And then I have moments where I feel pretty good about myself. Mm-hmm. Fleeting, as they may be. <laughs> <laughs> it's not about money. It's about shared experience. It's about actually keeping the laughter in the system. Mm-hmm. It's also about actually making sure that people know who we are. Society needs people, needs artists, because what we are supposed to do is to question society. But it's also to keep us alive and to make us see things differently. My job is to really make sure that I can get people to see us. We see each other. You see me, I see you. Let's do that. And that's what work is supposed to do. And that bridge will help us find the humanity of all of us. And it's important that we do that. It is important. And and I see you. (laughs) I really appreciate you. you. Yeah, I really appreciate you. you. Thank you you so much. And I appreciate you too. Yeah, Yeah, thank you. Cool. This podcast is brought to you by the National Association of Independent Artists. The website is naiaartists.org. Also sponsored by Zapplication. That's zapplication.org. And while you're at it, check out Will's website at willarmstrongart.com and my website at sigwithglass.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast to be notified when we release new episodes. 